0: Bernie and
1: I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I sat here last night and listened to Bern, and when he finished, I was so excited and we but I turned to my wife and I said, I'm gonna fly home tonight. <laughs> I mean, just there's no way I'm gonna try and follow that. It was just too much. And then I came up to him and I told him that and I said, But the only thing I said, you've taught me a real lesson. I said, You taught me a, two lessons really that I got out of it. Number one is that it's good for my ego to have to get up here and follow somebody like him and be able to talk to you and don't worry what you look like. That's the important thing. I'm only supposed to carry a message. I'm supposed to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. Let me start one one place. I want to thank the people that asked us. I remember when Dave called me. It was on the 1st of September, I believe. And uh, we were having an AA uh barbecue at our house we just moved we just moved to alcala florida on the first of july and we started going to a lot of meetings and we wanted to get involved and get to know the people so we just sent out a lot of invitations and had a bunch of people from our home group come over and uh, i made some roast beef and sliced it and green peppers and tomatoes and we got sub buns and stuff like that and had hot roast beef sandwiches and pilaf and all that junk And I remember we had them all over here and I barely knew these people and I'm stirring this stuff out in the kitchen. I can see myself now. I had one hand in the pot and the crock pot stirring them and the phone rang and I picked it up it was hanging on the wall. And this guy said, I'm Dave somebody but from someplace. I could not believe where it was. Salisbury steak or something like that, you know. I mean, but anyhow, I said, yeah, how you doing? I didn't have any idea on And then he told me that they were going to, they had this conference. And would you come up? And I said, oh, I'd be thrilled to. I'm just really excited about it. Good, well, we'll let you know. Where's it going to be? Well, we don't know. Well, how many people are there? Well, we don't know. And I thought, no wonder they're asking me. <laughs> you know, but, these it was a riot. Uh, and then and then we got here, and I got off the airplane, and, and John tells me that less than 22 of them, and this group, but on this conference. And I thought, dear God, they're more insane than I ever thought they were. And then it dawned on me as I watched her this weekend, because it's just been overwhelming to me that the promises are being fulfilled here. God is doing for you what you couldn't possibly do for yourself. And it's being done here and it's really, really it's really exciting to be part of it. The closest thing to that I have ever experienced was I was asked to speak on a Sunday morning to the first Yosemite conference, and it was the same way. They didn't know what they were doing either, and and it just was a huge success, so I want to thank you, Dave, for that phone call. that gives me a chance to be part of this. Thank John and his wife, Carol, and thank the way we are group. And, And I want to thank all of you, because I think what happens is my higher power, every so often, says, you got to remember where you came from. See, I get a chance to talk to groups of people a lot, but when I come to you, I get scared to death because i got to tell the truth. And it just really is, you know, i got to share with you who I am and really who I am, and I've got to do it in a way that exposes my vulnerability. So uh, I'm going to have to do it. You probably are going to get shocked, but that's the life in the big city. Uh, That's the way it is. Here it goes. I don't like to do this one little bit. I was born and raised in the city of Chicago, on the south side. I came from a family of fine Christian parents, and from the number of us that end up in AA from fine Christian parents, I'm not too sure that's a good place to start anymore. I want to assure you of one thing that I believe with all my heart and soul. I am an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic. I drank just the right amount for just the right length of time until I got here. My mama didn't put me on the potty backwards or something like that, and so I became an alcoholic. No, 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 no. I'm an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic. My dad was alcoholic. My dad was a periodist. He would drink on occasion. And then my mother would give my dad that book. And if my mother gave you the look she gave my dad, you'd have been periodic too. It was just one of those, zoom right through you, you know. And, and, and poor dad didn't know what else to do. But dad dad never got to meet us. He never got to know Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I, he would have loved you. He would have just loved you. And my mom, she should have found the doll and I She just never drank. She never got to it because she never heard of it. I wish she could have. She would have loved it, too. I had an uncle who was a priest. He was an alcoholic. He died an alcoholic. And I have another uncle who's a bookie. He died an alcoholic, too. I mean, we're just loaded with it. So, you know, I was just an accident waiting to happen. But one thing that I said for sure, and I'm sure a lot of you guys will identify with this, I saw my dad and I saw my uncle, and I said, this will never happen to me. I know it won't happen to me. I won't let it. And I knew one thing. You see, I started out right from the beginning saying, you know, all you got to do is use your willpower and say your prayers and it'll be okay. And I really believed that. I really believe it. And I started out, I, when I first got sober, I thought that the big problem I had is that I thought I was better than you, you know. I found out that wasn't what it was at all. I heard a speaker one time share something and it dawned on me. I never thought I was as good as you. I never, it never entered my mind that you might like me. So I was always doing things to try and make you like me. I went to parochial School. And, and I was one of those kids, you would have hated me in school. I love school. I always did my homework. Sister would say, "Well, somebody clean the backboard? Will somebody bring cookies? I mean, just always, me, me. Because I, I wanted her to say, Bernard's a good little boy, you know, pat me on the head and say, and that, and that I liked. And when I was a little kid, my uncle gave me a little Gilbert chemistry set, and I used to go down in the basement and play with it and make things go boom or smell up the house. And they'd say, there's a little Bernard down there with his chemistry set. And, and they noticed me and all these things. And I did all the things to try
0: and make you like me.
1: And it never dawned on me that I was okay. I just didn't think I was okay. I was a fat little kid so since the day I was born. I was that way all the time. I was 10 pounds, 6 ounces, coming out of the chute. That's the way I was. You know, and and I didn't know what to do about that. I, I I would only do, I would only play games I could win. I tried to play basketball one time. I ran out on the court, fell down, and rolled over and never played again. But I loved football. I loved ice hockey. I loved football because I could be in the center of the line and just hit people, hit people. And it was a lot of fun. And I could win at that. And I liked hockey for the same reason I could. You could run up against a person and just hit him, And I really liked that. But I didn't like baseball. That took skill. And I wasn't going to be any part of that because I didn't have it. I wasn't graceful. Well, I started doing a lot of things. I liked school. And I saw two things. I I remember going to church. I was a little kid. I was raised a Roman Catholic. And I would go to church. And the people used to pretend like they were paying attention to the priest. And so I used to watch them. And they'd look up there and they'd watch them. And I'd say, I think I'll be one of them because not many people wanted to be one of them. And then I also noticed that when I played with my little Gilbert chemistry said everybody liked that. And I said, I think I'll be one of them. So I got a master's degree in chemistry and I got ordained a, uh, a Roman Catholic priest and I was just going along real good and, and I was very successful and I was a teacher. And I ended up, I ended up, I remember in the south side of Chicago teaching in high school. Now this and for an alcoholic. I didn't drink, by the way. Because I knew my uncle and dad and all of them were alcoholics, so I wasn't going to drink. And I made up my mind. I wouldn't do this. And I, now, when I say drink, I'm talking about like what you and I know. You know, mother would give me a little glass of wine. I don't consider that. I consider drinking now. But I mean, when I was, when I was then, you know, that, that didn't count because I got into real drinking. Anyhow, I made up my mind when I was ordained and went back out that I would quit for a year to prove that I could control my drinking. Now, when you quit drinking before you start to prove you control your drinking, that's the disease waiting for the chemicals to catch up with it. But there I was. Well, after a year, I went out and played golf with a friend of mine one time on the west side of Chicago, Westgate Country Club. And we were going out there and we played the front nine and we came in and uh, we walked into the, into the bar, you know, and the guy said, what do you want? They're really very nice about it, you know. What do you want? I don't know what I want, geez. And I look up and I see a sign. Champagne, a bottle of beer, Miller. I figured, well, you know, I've gone in here, proved I'm I am better than you people. It was only nine months, it was a school year, but that was good enough. I didn't care. <laughs> it enough. So I look up and I said, well, give me one of them. Did I champagne a bottle of beer? And I think I had one, I used to say I had one of them, I think I had two or three of them. Went out to the 10th Sea and drove the green, first time in my life. My friend said, Sheep, aren't you, did pretty good with that? I said, yeah. About two days later, three days later, we went up to Heinz Hospital on the northwest side to visit somebody, walked into a bar, and my friend says, let's go get a drink. So we walked in there, and the guy's back there again. What do you want? I don't know. But I remember going to the movies, and if you were real cool, you said, scotch and soda. So I said, I'll have a scotch and soda. And I had two or three of them went home, threw up, and never had soda again, because I wasn't going to let that happen. i never forget that. I believed all this. I believed it. Well... It went on and on and on. I learned how to fly an airplane in my first year because I had another uncle who was a, a Navy pilot. and I learned how to fly an airplane because I wanted you to notice me. And I, the day I got my license, I went over to Midway Airport and checked out on the radio so people would see me land the plane. say, look at that crazy priest. He's flying an airplane. And I, I'd walk around and think I was great because you'd pay
0: attention to me.
1: One day my airplane in 1959, I lost an engine on the southwest side of Chicago and landed in a pea patch and, My superiors weren't real happy about that, and they shipped me off to Oklahoma. You know what day I got to Oklahoma? September 1st, 1959, to Tulsa. You know why I know that day so well? I arrived the day Oklahoma went wet, and there I was, and I, I just loved it. Now, in Tulsa, Tulsa is not this way, but this is what I remember. Everybody there drank more than I did. You know what it was? Everybody I knew. More than I did,
0: and I remember. It happens every time I talk about Elvis. I see the people that I knew who didn't get her. I got a picture of a guy sitting in a in his car, handcuffed to the steering wheel. A good, good friend of mine by the name of Bob.
1: He's handcuffed to the steering wheel, drunk as a skunk, laughing like a damn fool, while the
0: guy in the little car in front of him is burning to death. He was so drunk he just ran into the back of a stock car and choked. Him. I'll never forget him as long as I live. That could have been me. I see the picture of a gal I knew who was a spitting image. The twins looked like the twin sister of Barbara Stanwyck, who's fifty-three years old, died from our disease. A whole bunch of people. And there I was, and, and I was a teacher. I was I I became headmaster of the school there and
1: I loved it. And I loved the kids and I loved it. I loved, I loved everything about it i just it was just wonderful. it was just I just so exciting to be there and I used to travel on the buses with my football team and be on the sidelines with the kids and just just all excited
0: what was happening is I was living a lie now, don't ever tell me that God doesn't have a plan. Don't ever tell me because outside of me, he has a real plan because I got honest enough to say,
1: You are living a lie, and you can't do this anymore.' I was a Roman Catholic priest and I didn't want to be celibate. And I had a couple of choices. One of them was, just I just, just wasn't going to do this, but I wasn't going to be dishonest and I didn't know what to do about it. and I, I didn't know where to go or what to do, so I went to see my superiors and I went to see my, my uh, counselor. I used to go to the University of Tulsa and I went to see a guy by the name of George Small over there and we talked with him and I, I, I left. And I married Madonna. I waited until she grew up and got old enough so she could marry me and we got married and we moved and went to Madison. And I became principal of a big public high school. And I always say, God bless us, but some people say, are you sure? And the first year we were married, we adopted two teenage girls. And uh, for our first anniversary, we went out to dinner together with our two teenage girls, and Madonna and I. And I became principal of a big public high school. It was all wonderful. Now I've got the whole thing together. And then I met a priest by the name of Father Bob Child. He brought me to the Bishop of Milwaukee. And and I had my orders validated in the Episcopal Church. And I was back at the altar. I was celebrating Mass again. I was teaching in my school, running a big school. I had my family and everything. I forgot one essential. I forgot quit drinking, And I didn't know what was wrong. And, well, in that little town, those people didn't understand me, and they didn't know what it was about. And, and somebody said to me, why don't you come down? A good friend of mine asked me if I would come down and be his assistant. It's a funny thing. He had a halfway house that they ran in that parish. And the guy that ran the halfway house gave me my first, first 24-hour book. I thought he was doing it to be kind. I think he saw something. But anyhow, I went down to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I became his assistant in this great big parish there. Now, those people didn't understand. You see, I'm kind of like the guy, remember, that used to own the automobile dealership and then had to go back to work and be a salesman in it. For goodness sake, sake, you can't expect me, a man with my talent. I've got a master's in chemistry and a master's in theology, and I'm principal of high school and a doctoral candidate in counseling, and you're asking me to be somebody's assistant? For God's sake, you drink too, and so I forgot to quit drinking again. And I stayed there for a year and finally somebody called me. And, now there's a lot of, lot of drinker stories going on here, but I'm going to get through a couple of them just to let you know. I don't like to. I try to avoid them, but I can't. Uh, anyhow, somebody called me and said, "Would you come to our parish in Kentucky and uh, and uh, be our our pastor?" And I said, "Oh yes, I'd be glad to." And so I went to this little town called Versailles, Kentucky. And Versailles is a wonderful little town, and, and, and I lived I lived on a little street called Elm Street, and it was very quiet, and we had like my old Kentucky home there, and Happy Chandler, the governor, boy, I wonder, governor of Kentucky lived over here, and, it, and a professor at Kentucky's college was across the street, and all these people, and it's quiet and wonderful. And then there's this drunken priest that lives on the street, you know, and he's there. And uh, I, I remember one night coming home. I'd gone out to a party, and, and we came home. Now, uh, here it goes. And anyhow, I remember driving up in this lovely porch with a yellow light and a big glass, and, and it's quiet. And I come roaring into the driveway, and my daughter's there with the fiancé and my other daughter, Madonna, and I come up, and I'm so drunk, I can't get the key in the door to open the door, and i got to go to the bathroom, and I pee in my pants all over the place, you know, and I sit there, and you're just, you know, tomorrow night. My daughter got married while we were there. And they were going to have a party. And Madonna would say to me when we were going to go out, she'd say, Karen, please, take it easy, will you? Take it easy, take it easy. The way I took it easy, they have in Kentucky a thing. If you ever go back out again, please don't do this. But, God, I hope you don't, because it's a disaster. They have, they have silver cups that they call them julep cups. That's because nobody can tell what's inside of them, you know. And and they have a drink there called the in julep. And, and I had a little book that was a, an ode to the in julep. It's, you know, not a phony one, but the real one. And it's an alcoholic dream. Because what you do is you take a little brown sugar, and you put it in the bottom, and then you put a tablespoonful of water and some mint mint in there, and you mull it all around. Oh, this is just an excuse. Then you put crushed ice in, and then you just pour pure bourbon in there right up to the top. And you drink that down, and that's some mint julep, And I I just love it. Well, I forgot it. when I would be going out to a party and she'd say take it easy I would get the julep cup out which was somehow about 12 ounces and I would forget the ground sugar and I would forget the water and I would forget the mint and I'd just put the ice in and, and not too much of that and just fill it up with bourbon and and then I had an aspirator like the ladies have for perfume and I had vermouth in that because you got to be respectable and I would and aspirate it across it and call it a Manhattan You see, you can't say, what are you drinking? Oh, I'm having a glass of whiskey. You just can't say it like that, but you can say, I'm having a Manhattan, and you look respectable. And so I remember that I would go up to my room, and I'd have two big ones of those, and now I've got about 20 ounces of bourbon in me. Then we would go to the party, and I remember this one party we went to. And uh, I walked in, and they said, Father, can we fix you a drink? Oh, yes, thank you. I thought you'd never ask. And And then they gave me a glass. The glass is about this tall. They put about that much bourbon in it. They put a lot of ice in it and fill it up with water in here and say, Here, enjoy yourself. And I wanted to say, How? You know, I mean, just just not enough. Well, I would try to behave, you know. And then finally most of the people went home and just some of my drinking buddies were left behind. And then I went for it. And, and I really got it. Well, I thought I decided to go home. Madonna said they decided to send me home. And on the way out to the car... It must have rained and it's very slippery and muddy because I slipped and fell several times. And it's the only reason why I can figure out what that happened. And she got in the car, and she tried to find her way out of this housing development, and we couldn't do that. I got out of the car very kindly, walked around, and said, here, dear, let me drive. She says I ran it and raved, but I can't believe that. And so I got in the car, and I started to drive us home. Now, if you understand Kentucky Road, they don't go straight for more than 20 feet. They're curving all over, up and down hills huge trees on the other side of the road, and they've taken all the rocks out of all the fields and made rock uh, fences, you know. So, And I'm driving home <laughs> in a blackout because I don't remember any of this. They told me about it later. What I do remember is this, that it, that was a Saturday night. I woke up at 10 minutes to 8 on Sunday morning, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm fully clothed. And I jumped up, and I ran in the bed. I'm saying, to 8, i was supposed to be on the altar at 8 o'clock. I ran into the bathroom, I looked in the mirror, and there was the wrath of God looking right back at me. I couldn't, I was covered with dirt. There's a little scar here. Whenever I think I'm getting well, you know, if you start to get well and I'm getting holy, I just do this and say, oh yeah, I remember. I have a scar here still. Uh, what had happened is, there was no lens in this glass. And this, and I'm covered with blood, so I took my glasses off, and I washed my face, and I, and I, uh, Ran into the bedroom and followed dad out for allowing this to happen. That was for sure, because I'd have never done this. Then I ran back in there and and looked in the mirror again, and I saw the nightmare on Elm Street.
0: There I was. i
1: I gathered up all my alcoholic dignity, put these glasses back on. Now, there's no lens in here. And I go downstairs and go over to church and walk in and say,
0: on the way out the front door, I tripped and fell and, and broke my glasses, and, and I smelt like a brewery, and they knew, and I knew they knew. Do you know how it says in the book that we get through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization? I was so ashamed of myself that I had to get drunk that night, and it was just terrifying. The 4th of January, 1979, I got
1: a phone call. A lady in Fresno, California, she called me, and she said, would you come to Fresno and be our priest? And I thought, where is Fresno? It's 90 miles from the entrance to Yosemite. We flew out there. Yes, it was wonderful. We dazzled them with our footwork and did all that kind of stuff. And and I became the pastor of, of a beautiful, beautiful Northwest Fresno church, just magnificent. And I got there and I knew that I was drinking a little too much. And I said, I know what these Californians do. You just have a little white wine.
0: It doesn't work, I'll tell you. I was into the bourbon again, not very short length of time. Now
1: there were two, I'm kind of skipping along because I want to
0: get to my recovery.
1: We come along and there were two priests that came out there. There were young seminarians that worked for me in Kentucky and they came out and one of them uh, hadn't drank in 18 years. He used to belong to AA, but, every, and then he became ordained a priest and everybody knows that if you're ordained a priest, you can drink like a gentleman. And so he tried it again to be with his people. And they called me on good writing, and, and sent me down there to help him. And he was crawling around his hands and knees in a mess. And I went down there. Now, there's nobody in this room that's sober that doesn't believe in prayer. I, I know that. So I'm not making fun, but I want to show you how bad I missed it, how sick I was. I went down there, and I laid hands on him, and I prayed for him, and I bawled him out and said, Use your willpower and say your prayers and act like a man. And then I took his services on Good Friday night, and then I went home and had a few drinks because the tension
0: was just terrible.
1: And I got over that, and, well, he was there, and there was another young priest that came out, and he was, the bishop, decided to send me and this other young priest to a seminar called Ministering to the Alcoholic. I had gotten the literature for it and threw it in the wastebasket because I knew how to do it, say your prayers and use your willpower. Now, I had accomplished an awful lot, and I never said thank you, because I knew that all I had to do is work as hard as I want to and I can control everything. And my success was due to my hard work. I also knew how to con people and say, oh, God, help me. But I knew how to do it all. Well, the bishop sent us to the seminar and I listened to the seminar and I heard about this thing called alcoholism, a disease. And I thought it was wonderful for you people that you would get some help and things like that. And I heard about A&A and I heard about all these other things, you know, so... And I, I just thought this was marvelous. Well, I came home, and I, one night I said to Madonna, I said, you know, Madonna, I said, I've been drinking a little too much. I've got to do something about my drinking. She said, well, you're not alcoholic, are you? I said, oh, God, no. I knew what happened to that. You had to quit and go to a and A. wasn't going to do that. So anyhow, I, I, I did that. One. Well, that was just before. That was sometime in November, I think. I'm going to do something about my drinking. And I would do this regularly. I'd go on a diet. And the reason why I'd go on a diet was to prove that I could control my drinking. I didn't know I was telling the world I was alcoholic. Normal people don't control their drinking, only us. And so I decided I was going to do this. Now, when am I going to do this? When am I going to quit for a few days, get it all under control? Well, Christmas was coming. No, that wouldn't even be Christians are Christmas before Christmas. And then there was New Year's. You had to be thankful for a new year and celebrate on New Year's Eve. Oh, so, God, you can't quit then. Then there was Super Bowl. Well, every year I had a Super Bowl party. I'll quit the day after Super Bowl. So we had our Super Bowl party. Now, the Wednesday night before, we had had a bunch of people over for, not a bunch, but uh Father Mazak, who was the uh, the other young priest who was in good shape, he and his wife came over, and there was a couple from the parish, from Madonna and I, and I was doing my thing. I was a great host when I was drinking. I was always out in the kitchen making two for me and one for you and doing all this stuff, you know, and I'm and I'm yip, 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 yipping at her, and she's yip yip yipping back at me. And uh and she doesn't mind me telling you, we both belong to the fellowship, so she's not a lovely element. Uh but anyhow we're yipping away at each other, you know, and doing all these things. And uh and then the Super Bowl party came and uh I'm sitting there having my little bourbon and water. I think Los Angeles played. I don't know. I'm not too sure. I even watched the game. I didn't care. And Madonna was very nice to me all day. And then the next day, I'm going to control my drinking. So today's the day. Today's the day. I'm going to control my drinking. Today's the day. Today's the day. I go over to my office all day long. Talk about preoccupation. Today's the day. Today's the day. Today's the day. Came home from my office, 5 o'clock. Walked in the front door. I. Uh, oh, God, do I have a visual picture of this. Walked in the front door. Opened the door. Turned the corner. Opened the cabinet took
0: Bourbon, took out the drill cup, ice, poured the bourbon, and said, I'll it tomorrow. Went back to my office that night. Had a little meeting. Came home. Put the key in the door. Walked into the living room. The living room is full of people. And they are not left. They're sitting there real quiet.
1: I look over here. Here's Father Maysack and his wife. Here's a well Had a track guy sitting in the corner. I don't know him. Here's another couple from the parish that are friends of ours here oh, thank God, here's Madonna over here. She didn't have an accident or anything. What the heck's going on? And this guy over in the corner, who's become a dear friend of mine, got up, walked toward me, put his hand out, and said, my name's Ashley Dick, and I'm from Fresno Community Hospital. And I said, oh, my God, you're here for me. I knew what they were doing. I'd seen them do one of these intervention things where they tell all the naughty, awful things you've ever done, you know, and just, it's just too much. And I said, now, we are not stupid. don't ever let anybody say we are stupid. I said, watch out, you sucker. They're going to make you say you're alcoholic. You're going to have to go to that A&A thing and quit drinking. Be careful. And so I rose to the occasion right now. And poor Madonna, you know, she jumps up and she said, "When I knew they were there for me. She said, oh, well, good, dear. We got your suitcase back. Let's go to the hospital. And I said, no, 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 no. So and then we started. We started, you know. Well, I knew that they wrote down all these rotten things you did. So I thought, she said, you know how sick you are? I said, yeah, I really do. I said, let me tell you. And I told her, told them, the most rotten thing that I knew they knew about. And notice how I phrased that. The most rotten thing that I knew they knew about. And and I told them that. I told them just before we moved to California, our family, and we were in Kentucky, our family in Chicago threw a party, a going away party, I called it. Madonna said it was a thank God they're going party. But anyhow, they throw this party and they put me in charge of the booth. And in Chicago, in the basements, that's where the family rooms are. And you have the bar down there and the ping-pong table and all that. And we had this party. And, and of course, you know, she said to me, you behave yourself. And so I drank a couple of bourbon. to waters like right, once, you know. And then everybody went. And my brother-in-law's were the only ones there. And I went for it. And I started drinking pure old straight-up bourbon. And the next thing I know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't know this, but i was told. It. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And my brother in y- is yelling, what
0: the hell are you doing? And
1: I'm back here peeing on a chair. I thought I was in the bathroom. <laughs> You know, I don't know. When I say I'm an alcoholic, my name's Bernie, I'm an alcoholic. That means I throw off all that wet in my pants. I just don't know what order I do that in. That's just the way it is. That's I, I know it's too bad, but that's the symptom of my disease. But anyhow, uh, I told them that, and they said, yeah, we know. Well, they started out, you know, Bernie, if, if you don't go get help, you can't, you're going to lose your parish. Ah, i got another parish, help. And, and, and actually, you don't know what you're talking about. There's other ways to control this. And the other people said, if we can't be your friend anymore, if you don't get help,
0: Hey, get other friends. I don't need you. But I love Madonna more than anything else in the world. I loved her so much. And I knew what she was going to say. I knew she was going to say to me, Byrne, either you get help or you got to go. And I had a little yellow rocker. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And that was when God, I, I always think of a football game when I think of my sobriety.
1: God was the referee, and I was trying to go over the goal line, and I had one more play.
0: The clock was running out. He went, time. Mm-hmm. I said, this is your chance. And it was my moment of clarity. Mm-hmm. And I sat down in my little yellow rocker. And I said, okay, tell me about it. Now you never give a sucker an even
1: break. I said, okay, tell me about it. They were up, they had my suitcase, I was in the car and gone. I didn't know what happened to me. Gee, it's unbelievable. Well, I'm riding down to the hospital with this guy, and I remember saying to him, I said, I don't know what's happening,
0: and I don't know what's gonna happen, but at least I know this. I can take the mask off and start to be me. We got down to that hospital,
1: Now, it isn't really this way, but I got out of the car, and there's a sidewalk leading up to the side door. And I looked up, and the sidewalk was a mile and a half long. And there was a big arch sign over the door, and it said, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. And they told me that this would be very confidential. I walked into this main room, and guess what they have hanging on the wall of this main room in the treatment center. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 traditions. I thought, oh my God, people are going to know. And then there was a bunch of people like you there. And geez, they were sick looking. Oh God, it was awful. And I'm really cool, you know. I mean, I hope I had my fly clothes and all those kinds of things, you know. But I don't know. And I walked in there and they took me back. And I asked them if I could sit up for a while and read. I thought maybe if they saw I was reading. They'd see I was so intelligent, and they'd send me home. And so I read for a little while, and then they put me, oh, God, this is awful. They put me in these god-awful blue pajamas with these little slippers that you've got to shuffle to keep on your feet. And, and they put me on this plastic-covered mattress. You
0: know why it's plastic-covered, you know. And they put me in bed and said, have a good sleep. And I lay there. Good God, look what you've done with your life. And then I remember. I remember. I I used to say, I don't know where this comes from. It came from the grace of God, which I'm I said, Dear God, help me to learn to live without this chemical. And I went to sleep. Now, when when I get to share here, and I, I think they read, you know, what I say from here is only my opinion, but I believe these
1: first two steps are absolute miracles. I believe that with all my heart and soul. I have a good friend of mine named Vernon Johnson. He's an Episcopal priest who started the Johnson Institute and wrote the book I'll Quit Tomorrow and stuff like that. He's just a super guy. He, he doesn't mind me saying this. He's sober about, oh, God. He got sober at 62, so two years less than God. In fact, I asked him. He's the one that found an intervention. I said, Father Johnson, did you, are you a product of an intervention? He said, no, I married the wrong woman. But, uh... Anyhow, I asked him to define, you know, what do we do? He said, teach people about alcoholism. And he taught me alcoholism is the disease, the very nature of the disease, the nature of the disease. This helped me. The nature of the disease renders the victim
0: incapable,
1: not able to recognize the severity of the symptoms, the progression of the disease, or of accepting any ordinary offers of help. Well, you see, the first thing I said to you this morning is, my name's Bernie and I'm an alcoholic. The nature of the disease that I have tells me I don't have it. The nature of the disease that you have, oh, and by the way, the codependence, I consider you the same way, you're just addicted to something else. The nature of the disease that you have tells you you don't have it. You do, by being here, you do something contrary to the nature. That I call A miracle. So when I say my name's Bernie and I'm an alcoholic, that's a full-fledged miracle. I don't think I worked the first step. I think it's given to me and I accept it. I I think this is God doing for me when I am not able to do for myself. It's a darn miracle. Don't go off to Lourdes or Medecartia or all these other places to look for miracles.
0: Come here look at yourselves. We're a room full of miracles real miracle. We should all be drunk and wetting our pants today and falling down and throwing up. We're sitting here like people.
1: One time I was interviewing for a parish and I told him I was in AA and I said, in my, my parish in California by the way, about uh, 50% of the people were in the program. It was just wonderful. God, you know, and we come time for communion and we use real wine, you know, and stuff like that. And most a lot of them don't take it and some of them just name y'all don't different things." But anyhow, I was telling this parish about this, and I was telling them how I have all these alcoholics in the parish or people with LRs and all these things and narcotics and all these things. And this lady said, that was interviewing me, she said, how did the members of your parish react when all those alcoholics come to communion? I said, oh, nobody knows. They're God cleverly disguised as ordinary human beings. But, you know, and that's the way it is, you know. So I really believe that first step is a miracle. Here we are. We're a realm full of miracles. And the second step, which 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 one of you that really believes that, that God's going to make you well, restore you to sanity? Which one of you believes that you've got faith to believe, right? Come to believe. Which one of you believes that you've got this faith from God to believe it's going to work because you were so good?
0: Isn't that a riot? Jeez.
1: I was so good, God said, I'll get it's over. Oh, gee. I should be praying. <laughs> My God is a loving God. That me. I heard it this weekend. I've heard it from over everybody. My God's a loving God who loves
0: me unconditionally.
1: My God loved me just as much when I was out
0: there goofing it up and screwing around as He loves me today. He doesn't love me because I'm this good at shoes He loves me because I'm me. And he loves you because you're you. There is one who has all power, and that one is God. May you find Him now. So I got two miracles before I hardly got started. There I am laying on the bed in the detox ward with me. I think I'd really be humble. I walked out and started to play gin. I figured
1: if I could beat the guy that I was playing with, they'd send me home. There are only 12 steps. How I can do that in a week? I got a master's in chemistry. They'll send me home in 10 days. I know they will. And all this kind of stuff was terrible.
0: Anyhow, God knew that I was a really difficult state. And so he sent into my life a lady. They called her my therapist. I call her my first temporary sponsor. She was
1: this tall. She had a mouth on her to make a salty sailor sound like a pantywaist. So that's when she was cleaning it up
0: for me. And she, she was something else. Her name was Edie. And she'd say, my name, I never forget her. I just love her with a man. Say, my name's Edie, and I'm an alcoholic, and I hate the disease of alcoholism, but I love the alcoholic. And, oh, God, I, I needed it so bad. And I remember sitting in that first day, and I think Madonna might have been sitting yesterday. me. We had a family group thing, and Edie was sitting right across from me, and she was not a gentle soul.
1: She really was. She was a cream puff on the inside, you know, and she kicked out the back door of a squad car while she was handcuffed. I mean, one time in just a This is the kind of gal I had for a therapist. (laughs) She'd she'd kill you as soon as look at her, but just a loving, loving woman. And she looked across the room at me and she said, How do you feel? I said, Lady, how do I feel? I feel awful. She said, Why? I said, Well, lady, I'm a priest and I'm in the drunk ward. I said, You don't put that on your resume,
0: you know. I mean, it's not a big thing. And she looked at me and she said, Do you want to know how to stay sober?
1: I whipped out my little notebook and my pencil because I figured they'd give me a test later and I and I can do this pretty good. I'm sitting there. No, I don't mean you, John, but she points to it, and not you either. She points to her, a little guy sitting over in the corner who's in a wheelchair. That's because he got some nerve disorder from drinking. He's being thrown out
0: of treatment that day because his
1: insurance is no good. He looks like he doesn't know enough to come in out of the rain. And she picks him out and she says, Howard, Tell him how to stay sober, and I said, "Ah, oh, come on." And Howard said, "Don't drink. Go to me. Pray. Read the book. Get a sponsor and work the steps." And I, oh, and she said, "You do them in that order." And I said, "Yes, ma'am."
0: And I always said, "Yes, ma'am," to her, and never anything else. And I did what she told me, and I've never forgotten. About a week later, I was sitting at a table like this in the, in the day room, had my big book out on the table, and laying there. And this guy walks along. Now, this is supposed to be very
1: confidential. Nobody knows you're in this place. And this guy walks along and taps me on the shoulder and says, Hi, pilot." Jeez, I almost hit the ceiling. I thought I was just standing up saying, Oh, hello. He thought I had to pull you down. I mean, you know. He looks at me, and I'm saying, Hi, how are you? And he's saying, How are you? Oh, I'm just fine. This is just such a wonderful place. And inside, I'm just going crazy, you know. And he's talking to me, and I'm trying to figure out who he is. And then it dawned I mean my God, he's one of my parishioners. Well, we talked, and I told him how wonderful it was there, and how happy I was to see him, and all those things. And he said, "Well, I'll enjoy your dinner." And he sat down, and I sat down, and I started to walk. Around. He started to walk away, and he said, "See that book there?" And I said, "Oh, my chance to teach him something." I grabbed the book and I held it up, and I said, "Oh yes, yeah, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous." He said, "I know it saved my life for the last twenty-three and a half years." And he walked away, and I said, "Oh my God, there's
0: one in the parish." You anyway, know, well. Big Ed became my sponsor. And I love that man with a passion. I was with him three and a half years later. He was laying in bed. And I know real well how he feels today. He was laying in bed looking at an angiogram. His doctor had told him he had about a 25% chance of getting off the table. And his son sent me up and said, would you go up and say something to Dad now? There's a little nutty me with about three years of sobriety, and my sponsor, who I idolized. But he wasn't a good sponsor. But uh, he never had anything original to say.
1: I would be sitting in my office coming apart because these people didn't understand me, and I'd run over to his house and I'd tell him, Ed, hey, they, just, they just don't know they just, they're good. And he'd just laugh at me. He'd laugh at me and say, Well, I'll read the button, go to a meeting, it'll be okay. He never had an original thing to say in his life. Sometimes he has the unmitigated gall to tell me stories about himself instead of talking about me. But I was trying to help him. So anyhow, I was. I I went into his hospital room to say his son asked me to go to him, and I said, Ed, I, I said, the doctors have told you that you have about a 25% chance of getting off the table alive if you have the session, not if you don't.
0: I said, forget the odds. The people in charge are of God and nobody else. I know and we held hands <laughs> and said the third step prayer together and I left the room and said I'll see you and I never saw him alive again I just love him he so much to me. I can't sorry I can't help but then anyhow uh, uh I got some other sponsors that were just great, great, great people
1: and I have had a sponsor every day and when I move I get a new sponsor because I want somebody right there. I don't want
0: them to be making long distance calls on I've got one now that's just a super super guy and I really love him. Well let me tell you something. I, I believe this thing in the book. I remember I, I tried to find this and this this was
1: really critical and important to me. In the book on page forty four, and I don't mean to quote it, but it just this is where I know it is. I can see the sucker sitting there. I found that I didn't get all this at once, but it but it it's really helped me. If when you honestly want to you can't stop drinking altogether, if when you do drink you have little control over the amount you drink. When I read that if you want when you honestly want to you can't stop drinking altogether, I didn't identify at all. I didn't want to quit drinking. I thought it was great. But when it said, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you drink, now I don't change the big words, but I
0: put a little parenthesis in mine and says, or what you do, <laughs> you know. I would say, there were things that I said, I will never do that. I will never do that. And then I got drunk. And I did it. Then I got drunk because I did it. Then I could do it again because I was drunk. Then I got
1: sober because... You know, I'm just, I just—that was a squirrel chasing my tail inside the little thing, you know. If you, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you drink. And then Bill Wilson threw his, his sense of humor into the book. I just love it. He said, if that be the case, you may be alcoholic. I just think, oh, geez, come on, Bill. But you know the wisdom in that? Did you ever work with a newcomer? Go to him and say, did you ever look forward to drinking? Did you ever drink wine? than you want to? This is your body of it? You know that test that Brent was talking about. Did you ever go to a meeting? That's 5.23. Uh, You know, he, and the guy says yes to all these things. You say to him, "Well, you're a damn alcoholic." He'll go out and kill himself and get drunk that night to prove you're wrong. But if you go to him and said, "Did you ever drink too much? Did you ever do this? Did you ever do this? Did you ever do this?" and he says yes, and then you say,
0: "You know, I don't know. Well,
1: you just might have a little tiny problem with alcohol." You're setting the bait out there with a real cute worm on it, and that's where a sucker's going to take it. And then you zoom, set the hook, and bring him to me. And Bill was smart with that. The book is full of that kind of chunk, you know. He put the velvet on the hammer just before he hits her with it.
0: Anyhow, uh, it says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness that only, only a spiritual awakening will overcome. Now, let me, let me show you my situation here. I'm, I'm 26 years ordained to priest. I'm running to parish, I'm celebrating the Eucharist, I'm growing the sacraments, I'm lying like hell, I'm living a life. And now they tell me, if you want to
1: get sober, all you've got to do is go to this God and ask for help. And I mean, oh my God, geez. I have frightened to death. And you know what I think recovery is? I believe this with all my heart and soul. Recover, and I think you'll identify with this. Recovery is a journey from fear to faith. It's that I come to believe. When we're out there drinking and using and practicing our addiction, we're in unmitigated
0: fear. Here's where I was. I was afraid to death you'd find out how much I drank. I was afraid to death you'd find out what I did when I drank. I was afraid you'd find out what I was really like. And if you ever
1: found out what I was really like, I knew you wouldn't like me. And if you didn't like me, you wouldn't love me. And I desperately wanted you to love me. There isn't one of us in this room that doesn't desperately want to be loved.
0: I was afraid the book talks about something awful was going to happen. Impending doom. I'd come home from a vacation just before I turned the corner. I'd wonder, I'd wonder if the house burned down. Stuff like that. Then I'd be standing around sometimes and i what are you afraid of, Bernie? i say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just afraid. Aimless fear. Now let me ask you, when you were drinking, were you ever able to go into a bar?
1: Like I come up to John at a bar and say, John, will you talk to me? I'm just afraid of death. Get away from me a little creep before I deck it. But you know, I can go into an AA meeting and I can sit down any, next to anyone near you and say, I don't know what's the matter with you today.
0: I'm just afraid of death. And you're gonna say, Yeah, I understand. Full of fear. As we work these steps, the fear
1: goes away and the faith gets better. We believe more and more it's going to work. So it's like a teeter-totter. As one goes down, the other one gets better. Now, it's never... You know, one time somebody said, what did you tell my baby? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what you tell them? If you have faith, you won't have any fear. If you think you have perfect faith and no fear, you're dead. Lay down, we'll have a funeral. It's it's kind of like this, you know, it's this way. The faith outweighs the fear. What happens is God takes our hand when these awful things happen, and, and I, I have a naughty word for it, but it happens. You know, when this happens, God takes our hand and He walks through it with us, and that's how we survive.
0: So we go from fear to faith, and the thing that does it is our spirituality. I, I had a heck of a time figuring out what that was. I really did, and then one day I read it in the book. Now, please.
1: I am no expert. I'm an alcoholic for past, right? And all of us are, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on this is the definition of an expert. No, but I, I can tell you what it is for me. In the book, on page 28, it says the following. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, we're all children of a living creator with whom we may form, here's the word, a relationship I had tons of belief
0: systems over here. God, I only had a degree in theology. And I didn't have a relationship. The easiest way for me to explain what a relationship is is to see the young lady down here, you know, and then I say to them, do you know
1: who Tom Cruise is? And they say,
0: yeah, their little eyes light up, you know. God, oh,
1: Jesus, I know who
0: Tom Cruise is. I said, "Do you believe there's really a Tom Cruise?" "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." "Are you having a relationship with Tom Cruise?" "No." "No, no, 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 And you see them get (laughs) sad.
1: They know the difference between a belief and a relationship. Well, what we've got to have is a relationship with our God, and that's what Spirit. What we've learned in C means all. we are all children of a living Creator with whom we may form a relationship. What do we have to have it upon simple and understandable terms? As soon as we are what, willing and honest enough to try. And so, if we will just be willing—that's what Ebby said to Bill. Just be willing. It's in the book. And all I had to do was become willing, and I worked the steps. And so, spirituality for me is not my religion. Now. Oh God, please don't sing. The priest was here and told us is no good. Jeez, I'll lose my attention and everything else. Don't don't do that. God. Religion's running for I'll explain that later, but I'm talking about spirituality. That's what we have. Because the book says it's none of our business what religion our members are.
0: The book says that.
1: But we have to have a spiritual awakening. And spirituality for me is my relationship, my relationship with my God as my God makes the higher power known to me. It's not the belief system. It's the way the higher power makes the higher power known to me. I don't say, excuse me, ladies, I don't think God's a man. I don't think God's a woman. I don't think God's a man. It's God's God. That's how he got the job. The only one. I really believe that. It's not my mother's God, not my father's, not my aunt, not my uncle, not the priest, not the minister, not the church, not the Bible. It's God as God makes God known to me And that's who I have the relationship with. My religion is the way I express it. That's all. So I can sit down in a meeting and I can have everybody going to every place in the world and and not going to any others. That's none of my darn business. Our job is to have a relationship. How
0: do I get this relationship with this higher power? I heard it this morning. I heard it as clear as a bell. You said it.
1: Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. If I will work the steps, I will establish a relationship with my higher power. I will, as the book tells me, overcome this disease. Now, God bless Burns. This is a big-time doctor that was here last night. I mean, this is a big-time doctor. He can't do a damn thing for you with this MD. Because there's no way, nobody knows how to medically treat this disease. The greatest psychiatrist in the world can't. What did the one guy say? You're condemned to be unemployable. You're condemned to be this, that, and the other thing. And we say, come join us. Come join us and work the steps, and you will overcome this disease. And let us tell you what will happen. You will not regret the past. You will not attempt to shut the door on it. You will know peace. And no matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll find out that your greatest mess, in a way, is your greatest asset. I used to love to be in my office and have somebody come in, and they start to talk to me. they got a problem, blah, blah, blah. they tell me all their problems, and then they say, but you wouldn't understand.
0: i say, "Try me out.
1: You know who I am? <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm burning Oh, my God. And then it'd run out like a regurgitating, you know? It was wonderful. Because I could identify with them. I'd been there.
0: I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. But I'm also a miracle. And that's what it's all about. And that's my spirituality
1: is my relationship with my higher powers, my higher power, my higher higher power. So then, you know, they told me, I, I, I did all this stuff. and They told me to go to a fourth step and I wrote all this stuff down. I started writing it down. And one piece of advice I have for any of you who may not have done a fourth step yet, do not think about the fifth step when you're doing a fourth step. Do not think about it. Because I remember sitting there on the side of my bed on a Saturday afternoon, writing down, I said, I ain't going to tell anybody this damn stuff. I ain't going to tell them. I ain't going to
0: tell them. And then I started to tell it. And right in the middle of saying it, I burst into tears. The fifth step says this. Admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being.
1: Not every single rotten little goofy thing I did, but the exact nature of my wrong. The exact nature. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I was given wonderful parents. I love my parents. My dad was alcoholic. He was a sick man. And my mother, they were doing the best they knew how to do. And I loved them with a passion. I had a good home, a great education.
0: A great education I had! I had everything given to me, and I—I I don't mean this wrong, but I started to thumb my nose at God. And He reached out and picked me up out of that muck and mire and said, "Bernie, I love you. I love you. Come on, walk with me." And He says to each and every one of you. And the nature of my wrong came out, and I—I I remember right in the middle of this thing, I just cried out and said, "Oh my God! I've been so ungrateful. I've never said thank you for all I've got." just overwhelmed. And then I went through that, and I, I thought I'm really good. And, and you know what? I found out the promises in, in the big book on
1: page 75, the promises for the fifth step, are really true. Because I found out that now I had convictions and not just beliefs. I was able to live with them. And and I found out, too, that I could look the world in the eye. People used to, want to buy me vanity plates, you know, when I was in Oklahoma. Something that you could identify my car with. Hell, I didn't want anybody to be able to identify my car and where it was. Today, I don't care. I don't
0: I tell everybody. This is who I am, you know. By the grace of God and fellowship of the you know, I don't drink anymore. And, and and this is a great life. It's just wonderful. And I'm so happy with it. Six and seven, I like to share one thing
1: with you, and please don't be offended if you're still in this thing. But fourteen months after I got sober, it was I was smoking three and a half packs a day. And it was bothering me because my voice is very important in my work and my throat was hurting and my taste was awful in my mouth and it was just awful. And I, and I, I was gonna, I was gonna quit smoking at the end of this carton, but I'd run out right in front of Safeway and I'd have to go out and get another carton. So, and this was on the Monday before Ash Wednesday and I'm laying there in bed and I said, I want, you should never do something like this if you don't mean it. I wonder what I ought to do for Lent. And a big, I was laying on my back. A big sign in neon lights flashed across the ceiling. said, quit smoking. Well, I started my own rationalism. Can't do that too hard. did do did do. Just, but up And under one not want everything. Just crazy. And finally I said, oh, all right, I can't. If I'm going to do it, you're going to have to do it for me. And the voice came back. Thought you'd never asked. You know, now I don't hear voices, but you know what I mean. God communicates with us. I didn't see no lights or anything like that, but you know what I'm talking about. And so I said, well, how am I going to do that work your program, stupid? Oh, oh, what do you mean? One day at a time. So I went over to church on Ash Wednesday morning, and this was Monday, but Ash Wednesday morning, I went over to church, and I didn't have a cigarette. And this guy had been saying to me all the time, all the time before, the, you're smoking too much, you're smoking too much, you're smoking too much. I know it, shut up. You know, <laughs> well, he came up to me, and he said, yeah, you quit smoking for lunch, huh? And I said, no, no. He said, well, you're not smoking.
0: I said, I know. He said, well, then you quit smoking for I said, no, I didn't. I just quit for today. And from that day to this, I haven't had a year. Now, that's for me. That's for me. And that's how I work six and seven. I would love to say to you,
1: I got sober. I became entirely ready to have God remove all my character defects. I humbly asked Him to remove them. And you know what? Now I'm an absolute saint. And then you'd throw me out of here and say, well, I know one thing. You're a damn liar. But but what I believe about the six and seven is that if I become as willing as I can be, the degree to which I'm willing and the degree to which I own the character defects. see, I wouldn't own my character defects and take responsibility. I think that's what the humble means, accept myself for who I really am. I don't know how you were, but when I first started going to meeting and I heard them say, my name's Bernie. I'm a liar, thief, and cheat. I say, oh, God, don't talk about it. Today I can say it. My name's Bernie. I'm a liar, thief, and cheat. Not as bad as I used to be. But a hell of a lot better than I used to be. But not as good as God's going to get me. But the degree to become I'm willing and the degree to which I own it and ask him to take it away to that extent to the removal I think that's what happens. At least that's how it works for me. And I and I and I have to keep constantly working at it and saying that. And I only do that so I can carry out his will. Eight and nine, I'll tell you a funny thing about that. Uh, we got sober and we were back, and, and, and this is not the way to do it, a man. I'll just be sure you one example of it. We were in my sister and brother-in-law's house uh, when they had that party before we went to California. And they threw me out of there. Uh, and so we went and stayed there one night after we were, uh, got sober. And... Carol, uh, my sister-in-law came out and I said, I want to talk to you about something the last time I was here. She said, no, brain don't bother. I said, sit on, sit on. I've got to work a nine-step on you. And, and then I perceived well, the poor thing, no, you shouldn't do that. Talk to your sponsor first, because I almost blew it. Ten! There's a word in ten that I don't even like to say in practice.
0: Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were, you know, I don't even like to say it when I'm sharing. Wrong!
1: When we were wrong. The night they did the intervention on me, I I always could say, I, mean, I always say I'm sorry. Geez, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I can get an Academy Award to tell you how sorry I am. and You know, I never admit I'm wrong. And that's the thing. But the pain builds up. The pain builds up. until finally I say, all right, all
0: right, all right, I'm wrong. And that's what I have to do. I
1: have to be able to willing to
0: say that. And it's very difficult for me. I wish I didn't have to say that, but it is. The 11th step for me is an important thing. So I do prayer and meditation to increase my conscious
1: contact with God, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. I've had a real serious experience with that. Seven weeks ago tomorrow, I had open-heart surgery in, in Ocala, Florida. You know, where they come at you with one of those, <laughs> spread you open like a chicken and go in there and, and put in four new little bypasses or whatever those are, you know. And my next-door neighbor, who's a nurse, says, and what is the experience like? It's like hitting with a Mack truck. I mean, that's really something else. But I remember when I first started hearing about this, on the 3rd of December, I went to my doctor down there, and uh, he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I don't have a doctor in Florida yet, and besides, my high blood pressure medicine is running out, and I need to renew it. And they did a, car- a cardiogram on me, and EKG, and he said, oh, not like something in that. I think you ought to have a stress test. They did a nuclear stress test, and he said, hell, oh, you already had a heart attack. I said, I did. I didn't know it. He said, I went to, have a cardiac test. They did a cardiac test, and they put you out, you know, and they stick a wire in you and your groin and go right up through your heart you know but thank God I was asleep and I got to watch it on TV which was kind of fun uh, but anyhow as I come out of the anesthesia there's a man standing right here it's kind of like an intervention that gets you when you don't know what's happening because if you ever think about it you would never let him do it and he's standing right here and he said my name's Dr. Cockendale and uh, I'd like what are you doing Monday morning I'd like to do a quadruple bypass on you." I said oh okay <laughs> Jeez, you know I, oh my Lord so I was, I was scared to death. I was scared of death. And I was talking with a friend of mine. And he said, you know,
0: he said, I was facing the same thing. And I finally had to say, I surrender. It's out of my hands." And last night when I heard Burns, and he kept talking, remember when he kept talking about the different people? And he kept saying,
1: this message is for somebody who's two weeks sober. This message for a 30, 30 days sober. Okay? And I thought, oh, isn't that nice to start with the newcomers? And, then, and this message is for somebody five
0: years. And this message is for somebody ten. And I kept saying,
1: yeah, keep it down there. Keep it down there. I don't want to listen to what you're saying. And he said, and this message is for somebody twenty. Okay, that's your guy's more than me,
0: because I'm only eighteen. And, but I heard him. And I had to do that third step. I really had to do it. Now, I'm going to tell you
1: how much it works. They took me in there on Monday morning, and I got in there, and I thought I was going to go to surgery about eight o'clock or something like that. So they got me in there, and, and uh, they asked me how I was, and I was fine. And, all the, and Madonna and I sat around, and another lady came, and she came down and
0: prayed for us. And I was uh, getting lots of prayer people from everywhere. were of our brain, and I just felt like they were... Don't ever tell me that you can't feel the power of prayer. It's unbelievable. So I'm laying
1: there. And finally, at one point, some nurse comes along around noon and says, uh, I would imagine that it's been a while since you've had a shot, and that you're, you're probably wearing off, and you probably need something to calm down. I said... You haven't given me nothing yet. I haven't given me nothing yet. I just thought I was going to surgery. Oh, well, we'll take care of that. So finally, at about 1 o'clock or something like that, they wheel me out of the room. They take me downstairs. Now, if you want the ultimate, if you think admitting you're an alcoholic is embarrassing, if you want the ultimate, they put you on a bed, they got a little sheet over you, and then the next thing you know, they take the sheet away, and there you are, just like you came out of your mama. You know, and this young nurse comes up to me, and she's got a razor, and they they don't use it. You know, they got the electric razor now. And she starts in on me, and she's all over me. And she said, and I'm saying, oh, she said, I suppose this can't hurt me. Oh, ladies, do what you got to do. It's too late now, you know. I mean, geez, they, just everywhere they shave you, and you've got nothing left. you like a chicken. And it's been totally plucked, you know. And they're getting ready. And then they come along, and they said, okay, here you go. And they wheel me down the corridor and they wheel me in the afternoon. room. I was a little bit disappointed. I expected an amphitheater with a whole bunch of people watching. This was a little kind of small room with things coming down out of the ceiling and stuff like that. And they say, here, get over on the operating table. And it's a little narrow thing about this big. That's so they can get in close. They didn't worry about me. They wanted to get in close. They lay me on this thing and they start pulling my arms out, you know, and, and then uh, the doctor, the doctor now, geez, I'm getting really nervous. The anesthesiologist says to me, well, I suppose your shot's wearing off. Uh Maybe we'll give you something a little extra while we're getting you ready. I said, you haven't given me nothing yet. <laughs> God, please remember before you get the knife out and the saw, will you? Geez, hurry up. And, but I remember they must have thought this one, I think the reason why they thought I was a real coup.
0: the little church I go to at the end of Eucharist,
1: we sing a little song and it's,
0: surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I just love it. I just love it. And I was saying either the third step prayer, or I was
1: hymning, humming, humming, him and geez, yes, I'm, I remember. I was I was humming that surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And the doctor that was gonna operate me, I know praise every time before he does it. And I'm there, and the next thing you know, they're saying, Mr. Glenn, is it okay? Is it okay? Is it okay? I said, Are you all done? And they were done. They they've given me something, I assure you.
0: But if it weren't for this program, I wouldn't have been able to do this, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And as a matter of fact, one of the first things I asked uh, my doctor kept
1: saying, "You've got to call those people out in Maryland and tell them you can't come." My God, this is the 15th of November of December, and they're not going to let you out of here for a while. And then I had to go back to the hospital on Christmas Eve and come back out. And I remember taking little tiny steps and doing all this. And she kept saying, "You've got to call those people and tell them you can't come." And I asked my doctor when I when he said you can go home. I said, "How soon can I fly?"
0: And he said, "You can fly in three weeks." So I've been
1: going over to this cardiac rehab and riding this damn bicycle and walking on the treadmill. And,
0: uh, and seven weeks later, here I am talking with you. Now, if you don't think that's a miracle, then that's God doing for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself.
1: There's a little pamphlet. It's called the Member's Eye View. They used to have it. they had that black eye with that thing out, it, you know, looking out. And in the back end of it, there's a little thing in there. When uh, John Baptist was in jail... And he sent his dice to Jesus and said, go ask him, uh, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And he sent him back and he said, go back and tell tell the carpenter that the blind see the lame walk is up here. The poor in spirit have good news and all that kind of stuff.
0: So we did. Well, the night before the 21st of January, 1980, before that, I couldn't see. I couldn't hear nothing except what I wanted to hear. I had little all over me and my esophagus was getting hurt. I didn't know any good news. I thought I'd have been sent around dead. And then God. <laughs> sorry, God sent me you. And I'm so grateful to you. So grateful. And I love you all so much. Because now I can see. And I can hear. And I got so damn much good news. I, I just get all excited about it. And I hope and pray to God that I always remember what you've done for me. I thank God every day for giving me AA. But most of all, I thank AA for giving me back, my God. Thanks a lot.